Well, I thought uh, since we worked so hard before lunch, we'd take an easy topic, music, after, uh, after lunch. Uh, my hope is that most of you will uh, snooze through this so I won't get into any trouble. <laughs> I always remember um, a writing of Jacob Eppinger, one of the great uh, retired ministers of the Christian Reformed Church, used to write, still does write regularly in the banner, and he said it used to bother him as a young preacher when people would sleep through his sermons. And then he remembered that sleep is a great gift from God, and if he could give that gift to people, at least it was something. And uh, So those of you who uh, need your rest, uh, feel free. Oh. Well, um, you can go to sleep right away. Um, um, I suppose one could make the case that there has been uh, no more disruptive topic in the last 10 to 20 years in the life of local congregations than the topic of music. And uh, part of the reason for that is that we have gone through a rather dramatic shift in, um, in the style of music in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Uh, we have gone through uh, a rather dramatic shift in what we think music ought to accomplish in the worship service. Uh, we have si seen since the 70s a whole new uh, uh, literature of music uh, being produced for the use of the church. And uh, we have seen some tendency to see the church segregating itself along age lines in terms of what we know and what we like. And that has led to a great deal of uh, controversy uh, in the church. And uh, one of the things that uh, I have learned as a church historian, and that musicians in particular never learn, I shouldn't say that, musicians too often don't learn, is that church people like to sing, above all else, what is familiar. Whereas musicians usually like something kind of new. And that sets up a fundamental conflict in the life of the church between the people usually entrusted with the leadership of music who are understand music, like something new, like something a little innovative, like a little change, and most of us in the pew who really would rather sing just something familiar. And so we plunge into this, um, this um, war zone of the church. If we're having worship wars, the battle lines are usually principally drawn around music. And uh, once again, uh, I have opinions on all conceivable questions related to this matter, some relatively well-informed and others just purely a matter of prejudice. But I do hope that we can try to think uh, carefully about this, and um, I suppose the place I would like to start, again, is with an observation that music in the last 20 years in many churches has become more and more a central, prominent aspect of worship. More and more time is being given to music in many evangelical congregations, whether that's time being given to choirs and to soloists, or time being given to uh, a protracted singing of uh, uh, songs one after another, or both. 
and that the percentage of time given to music in a given service in many, many places has risen dramatically in the last 20 or 30 years. And I suppose that struck me because in looking at uh, historic liturgies, particularly of the Reformed tradition, what struck me was how frequently in, say, Calvin's liturgy or Knox's liturgy, is there would be two or at most three songs sung. That was the full extent of the music. Music was not that central, was not that uh, prominent. And uh, then if we step back uh, from uh, history and from the contemporary world and ask about the New Testament, it's a useful thing to ask how prominent was music in the life and the worship of the New Testament church. Now, uh, take a minute and write down all the verses you can think of that relate to music in the New Testament. There are some, but there aren't very many. Uh, there is no record uh, that when Jesus went preaching, he was accompanied by a gospel band and a mass choir. Um, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts, when we uh, find descriptions of the church at worship, there is not much explicit mention of singing. There are some references to praise. There are some uh, uh, ambiguous references that could conceivably be song. But in point of fact, there is no great effort to highlight song as a, a terribly prominent, terribly important element of the worshiping life of the Christian community as described in the book of Acts. And I think that this should at least give us pause uh, if we want to um, be those who are following the pattern of the New Testament in our worship, uh, we ought to ask ourselves whether we are at some risk of overdoing music in the total mix of things. Uh, some of us, uh, who especially are staying in quarters close by here, uh, might want to press to our uh, Pentecostal friends uh, this point in particular, since they're so adamant in recreating New Testament worship, um, where is the justification of singing from morning till night and well after nightfall? <laughs> but the more important question, of course, is what, what is the d direction, what is the instruction uh, that the New Testament gives us uh, about music, about singing, about its function? Clearly the New Testament sang... Uh, we were looking at that uh, before the lunch break. Uh, each of you has a hymn. The expectation was that there was going to be singing. Uh, we know that our Lord, uh, after the uh, last Passover he celebrated, which he turned into the first Lord's Supper, uh, they sang a hymn, the scripture tells us, at the end of that um, service uh, together. Uh, both in Ephesians and in uh, Colossians, the apostle calls upon the Christian community uh, to praise God with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And although that may not be immediately and directly a context of public worship, nonetheless it certainly would seem to have some implications for public worship. And so uh, we don't have to fear that uh, we uh, will end up in the position of uh, the reformer of Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli, 
who uh, outlawed all singing in the public worship of God. In the Reformed churches of Zurich, there was no music of any kind, neither instrumental nor sung. Um, which is kind of interesting because Wingley was probably, of the three great reformers, the most musical. He was a very fine musician personally. He said, music is too dangerous, too emotional. It'll lead people astray. He outlawed it altogether. Well, I think that was an overreaction because I think there is indication of, of singing in the New Testament. But as we approach this subject, I think it's very important to approach it with that realization that perhaps all of us have made a bit too much of music compared with what the New Testament makes of it. And that we need to uh, especially be cautious when we are tempted to see prayer and preaching and Bible reading shrunk so that there is more time for music. Uh, that should be uh, a basic concern uh, for all of us, it seems to me. Now, I've sort of broken the subject of music into two parts the texts that we sing and the tunes to which we sing those texts. And uh, I want to talk about texts this afternoon uh, and uh, tunes in the morning, more or less. It's not a, a rigid or absolute uh, distinction. Now, We do find then in the New Testament that there is a call to sing and a call to have texts and a use of words to describe that singing. And the most uh, familiar words are summarized, as I mentioned in Ephesians and in Colossians by the Apostle Paul, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, and I think the, um, the new um, hymnal of the uh, Presbyterian Church USA is divided into those three sections. They have uh, psalms at the front and uh, hymns in the middle and spiritual songs at the end. And isn't that a nice, tidy way of doing it? Uh, well, I think it's a little too tidy because I don't think psalms and hymns and spiritual songs were technical terms uh, with clear uh, definitions and clear distinctions from one another uh, at the time of the New Testament church. It is a little tempting to think that way, isn't it? Um, again, I would say it's a, it's a form of theological abstraction that says, oh, well, we know what a psalm is. That's in the Old Testament. We, we know what a hymn is. That's a kind of majestic song like Martin Luther wrote or Charles Wesley or somebody. And then we know what a uh, spiritual song is. Um, those of us who are older and cranky are inclined to call them ditties. And so, um, uh, so you have uh, this very clear notion in our mind of, of these distinctions. But uh, that's, that's really, I would say, not clear from a study of the use of these words in the Scripture themselves. Uh, for example, um, the Scripture clearly says that when Jesus and his disciples had um, uh, finished the meal, the, the supper, they sang a hymn, a hymnos, and went out. And yet whatever, everything we know about the Passover celebration in the uh, New Testament times encourages us to think that what they actually sang was Psalm 118, that the Passover meal was characteristically concluded by Jews with the singing of Psalm 118, and therefore uh, it's almost certain that the Lord and his disciples sang Psalm 118 and that that song was called a hymn by the writer, not because he was denying it was a psalm, but simply because these are, are fluid terms. They are not technical terms. 
In uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14.26 that we looked at, uh, Paul says each of you has a psalm. The word psalmnos is used there. But I don't think um, that uh, Paul is talking about the canonical psalms of the Old Testament. I think he's talking about immediately inspired song in the hearts of the people. That's debatable, of course. But I, w- I would simply suggest that psalm and hymn and spiritual song are three words describing approximately the same thing, sort of the way we might talk about a tune and a melody. Uh, they, they have slight differences of meaning, but we, might, we would use them ordinarily not to emphasize their difference, but to sort of cover the range of uh, music that is offered to God. Um, that's reinforced by the fact that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the words psalm and hymn and song are each used in the little titles of the psalms of the Old Testament to describe a psalm. So some psalms are called psalms and some psalms are called hymns and some psalms are called songs. And in studying them, it's not clear to most observers what distinguishes the one from the other. So these are not technical terms. Uh, but are references simply to songs. And once we've established that, then we have to ask the question, all right, what kinds of songs does God want us to sing? Uh, He wants us to sing some range of songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but, but what are the songs that he wants us to sing? What are the texts that he wants us to sing? And uh, here we, meet, uh, we, we face an immediate divide in the road. Uh, for most evangelical Christians, um, the road taken, the road more often taken, was the road that says, well, song is a lot like prayer. And just as we are free to write prayers and offer them to the Lord, Uh, just as we are free to spontaneously come up with prayers and offer them to the Lord, uh, so we are free to write songs. Most of us aren't very good at preparing spontaneous songs, uh, but um, the church as a whole is free on the analogy with uh, prayer to prepare songs and to offer them to God as part of our worship. And that's a widespread uh, opinion both in evangelical circles broadly and in uh, reform circles today. The road less taken today is the road that says, well, no, uh, song is really more like scripture reading. Uh, Now, we may not uh, immediately uh, think about that or or, um, that may not immediately come to mind, but the point is, being made that some elements of our worship we think are given fully and completely by God and others we have a certain freedom to uh, come up with uh, and, and create uh, the elements to offer to God. We, we can't create elements, but we can create the content of elements uh, within certain restrictions. And so uh, th- the question is, you see, is song more like prayer or is it more like scripture reading? Um, most of us, I think, would probably agree that if, um, if the minister stood up and, and said, our scripture reading today, or our reading today, is taken from the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, uh, we'd not be thrilled. 
Now, why is that? Is it because John Calvin has nothing useful to say to us? Well, I hope uh, none of us would think that. Is it not because uh, Calvin may not have some especially effective way of, uh, of developing a doctrine? No, I don't think we'd say that. Um, if, you're, um, if you're preaching on the doctrine of original sin, for example, it might be easier to find a full, elaborated statement of original sin in one of the great theologians of the Reformed tradition than to find a biblical text that is as clear and full. And yet we would feel that it is God's own word that has given us to be read in public worship. Um, Paul did say to Timothy, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. To replace Scripture with a human authority uh, would strike most of us as inappropriate and wrong. God's given us his word, we ought to read his word. And there are those, as you know, in the Reformed tradition that have said, song really is more like Scripture reading than like prayer. Uh, We ought to sing the songs God has given us and inspired for us, rather than singing songs that we've made up for ourselves. And the question is then, which of these roads should we take? Uh, It's not entirely uh, easy, it's not entirely clear to answer that question. And uh, what I hope to do in this hour is to get us thinking about that. Um, I frankly haven't fully made up my mind about this question. And, uh, but I think it is good for us to think about the road taken because although the Lord has given us in the Bible no book of prayers and no book of sermons, he has given us a book of songs. And at least that should incline us to realize there's, there's some distinction here. There's some uh, um, difference here. The book of Psalms in Hebrew is called the book of praises. And why has the Lord given us a book of praises when he hasn't given us a book of prayers or a book of sermons? Does that in any way indicate something about how we ought to be thinking? At the very least, I would argue that particularly in a day like ours, where there is so much debate and so much confusion about what we ought to sing, that we need a renewal in a knowledge of the Psalms because the Psalms, at the very least, give us an inspired model of how we ought to sing praise to God. Even if we are not exclusive psalm singers, we as Reformed people must surely grant that the Psalms, as inspired songs, give us something of the shape, the character, the direction that our singing ought to take. And that in evaluating a human composition for singing, we ought to turn back to the Psalms and ask, how does any composition, whether 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or yesterday, how does any new song lyric measure up to the model, to the standard set in the Psalter of God? Uh, John Calvin um, treasured the Psalms uh, in, a, in a very powerful way and uh, wanted uh, people to, to sense that power, that importance of what we sing. He wrote, 
we find by experience that music has a sacred, almost incredible power to move hearts in one way or another. Therefore, we ought to even be more diligent in regulating it in such a way that it shall be useful to us and in no way pernicious. That's true, isn't it? Uh, that, that music is tremendously powerful. It gets in the blood. It gets in the mind. Uh, one of the more annoying experiences of life, isn't it, for some awful tune to get in our heads and we can't get it out again? Now, I don't want to offend anybody, and any time you offer a specific example, you're bound to offend somebody, but I went to my son's college graduation last month, and at that they sang, People Need the Lord. In my humble opinion, one of the most vapid and insipid songs ever written, but the kind of tune that gets in your head and you could hardly get it out. It's a little like going to Disneyland and singing, It's a Small World. <laughs> And, and you see, those things do get in our heads. Words get into our heads, as well as, as tunes. And uh, what Calvin is saying, there is such power in music that we have to be especially careful with it so that it doesn't lead us astray by its own, uh, by its own power. Uh, Luther knew that. And Luther said, we need to use hymns effectively to teach the truth. And in the late 16th century, the Lutheran hymn writers came up with some very interesting ones. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, uh, roughly translated from the German. Um, I thank you, O Lord, that I am not a Turk or a Papist or a Jew or a Calvinist. <laughs> now, see, that's doctrinal teaching with a vengeance. Uh, you get that in people's minds to the tune of it's a small world and they'll, they'll never defect. But, but precisely because there is such power in music, we have to be all the more cautious, all the more careful, all the more reflective as to how we use it and what we make of it. Now, as I have thought about the Psalms and um, their usefulness, uh, it seems to me that uh, we can say several things about the Psalms. Uh, and the first thing that we can say is that they are inspired. That is not a profound thought. But it's true. They are inspired. And uh, personally, especially when I'm confronted with a new hymn, uh, I find it very reassuring to be able to sing something about which I can have confidence there are no doctrinal errors. Now, uh, I'm, um, I suppose, overly persnickety, and it's part of the curse of being a church historian. There are certain hymns that when they are announced, I know what the author of that hymn intended, and I don't want to sing it. Now, most people are blessedly ignorant, and I hate, again, to offer any examples, because it will only spoil certain hymns for you. Um, shall I offer some examples? <laughs> Faith of our fathers. Sung at many a Reformation Day rally, written by a Roman Catholic to celebrate the faith of his fathers, and uh, to remember the days when Roman Catholics were imprisoned in England and suffering for their faith. Not really the ideal anthem for a Reformation Day rally. <laughs> or uh, consider uh, Blessed Assurance. Mmm. Second verse. 
perfect submission, all is at rest. Are you perfectly submitted? Are you perfectly at rest? Well, good for you. But the rest of us are not perfectly submitted. That's an old holiness hymn. That's an old hymn of Christian perfection. Now, you can say, well, the words don't require that. No, they don't. But um, they're problematic. I recently heard a tape of John Gerstner, tapes on the dead yet speaking. And um, John Gerstner was talking about uh, trust and obey. Oh, now, come on, don't pick on that one. What's wrong with trust and obey? Well, Gerstner, in his inimitable way, said, uh, Now just listen to that chorus. Trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. There's no other way to be in Jesus but to trust and obey. There's nothing to do with being happy. (laughs) Well, you see, uh, the the problem is, you see, quite unintentionally, you end up singing uh, things that really aren't true. Not bad imitation, huh? <laughs> I, was at a, I was at a conference um, a, a couple of years ago, and it was a, a very serious conference of uh, 20-year-olds on the importance of theology, and uh, I had a number of good addresses there, and, and then uh, uh, we concluded by singing a song. It was a contemporary song, um, but it had a rather nice tune. I'd never heard it before, and uh, it had some substance to the words. I'm not... Uh, Uh, objecting to writing contemporary tunes but the chorus I started it and then I stopped and my wife who is a dear long-suffering soul leaned over and said what's wrong with that one (laughs) I sometimes worry that my children principally go to church to observe where I stop singing Um, well the chorus was father You are God alone, and we know you through your Son. That is an Arian hymn, beloved. It denies the divinity of the Son. It doesn't intend to, I'm sure. I'm sure the author did not intend to be inculcating Trinitarian heresy into the Christian community. But the words, as they stand... Say, Father, you are God alone. If the Father is God alone, then the Son is not God. It's the only way to understand words. And if the Son is not God, then you're an Arian or a Jehovah's Witness. And all these people are singing it. Father, you are God alone. Don't say that stuff. You should not say anything to God that isn't true. And uh, there's the problem. But when you sing a psalm, you see, you thought I'd lost the track of this. When you sing a psalm, it's inspired. You can relax. These words are all true. Every one. And uh, there is something wonderful about that, that confidence that we can have uh, to sing God's own word back to him. Again, Calvin wrote, Moreover, that which St. Augustine has said is true that no one is able to sing things worthy of God except that which he has received from God. Therefore, when we have looked thoroughly and searched here and there, we shall not find better songs nor more fitting for the purpose than the Psalms of David which the Holy Spirit spoke and made through them. And moreover, when we sing them, we are certain that God puts in our mouths these words as if he himself were singing to us to exalt his glory. Uh, As far as I can discover, 
except for a time that they sang the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed. In Calvin's church at Geneva, they sang only psalms. Now, I can find nowhere in Calvin a statement that we may sing only psalms. Uh, Calvin doesn't seem to have adopted exclusive psalmody in those terms, but what Calvin seems to have concluded is that psalms are the best thing to sing, so why would we sing anything else? If psalms are the best thing to sing, Calvin seems to imply, uh, why would we sing worse things to God? Even if worse things are permitted, why not sing the best things, seems to have been Calvin's point of view. And he seems to derive that conclusion from the inspiration of the psalms. And, And the very least we should conclude from that, it seems to me, is that we ought to sing the psalms. Uh, even if we don't sing them exclusively, we ought to sing them significantly. We ought to treasure them. We ought to get to know them. And uh, if I were being uh, more the school marm today, I suppose I would, I would say, um, if we had a little test today, I bet every one of you, well, almost every one of you, would know many more hymns than he would psalms that if we sang the first verse, you probably could sing the first verse of 50 or 100 hymns. How many psalms could you sing the first verse of? And so, uh, well, yeah, some people have an advantage. But um, uh, this is something we really ought to ponder. We say, we confess, that we want to hide God's word in our heart, that we might not sin against him. How much better a way is there to hide God's word in his heart than by singing it regularly. Uh, I, I sometimes even suggest we would, we would be improved in our praise if we would take the Apostle Paul in the most surface reading and say that at least a third of what we sing ought to be psalms, because he says sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. See, if you want to have really fundamentalist exegesis, a third of what you sing ought to be psalms. But I don't think in most of our Reformed churches anymore it is a third. And I, I think we ought to long to sing the psalms that we might know them and hide them in our hearts. Now, secondly, I would say not only are they uh, 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 inspired, but they are balanced. You know, when we, when we debate hymns, when we debate what ought to be in hymns, uh, one of the things that we debate is what is a balanced hymn? How much objectively should the hymn celebrate the great redemptive work of God in history, and how much should the hymn be subjective about how that objective work has impacted upon me? And that's difficult to balance, isn't it? How much should the music be teaching in its focus? How much should it be an exhortation in its focus? How much should it be responsive to God in its focus? And one thing we know is that the Psalms are balanced in their answer to those questions because they're inspired. And at the very least, we ought to know the Psalms and treasure the Psalms so that when we evaluate a hymn on the basis of how balanced is it, we have a standard. We have a model. But if we don't know the Psalms very well, then the Psalms can't function as a standard and a model for us in that way. You know, one of the interesting things to study is the history of hymns. Hymns have a history. Hymns change over time. The character of hymns changes over time. You go back to the 18th century, you have the grand hymns of Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts, 
The people who grow up, grew up singing psalms, they're the best hymn writers. And then you move into the 19th century and you have a much more revivalist hymnody. Uh, some of it very, uh, very militant. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. He's soldiers of the cross, pounding away with a militant tune. Some of it, late 19th, early 20th century, becoming very sentimental. There is a green hill far away, or the, the, the pinnacle of American sentimentality in the garden. I come to the garden alone. You can ice, well, you can roller skate to it. Um, <laughs> but, but you see, there's a definite history. A musician can listen to a tune and tell you within 50 years when it was written. There's a history, there's a progress. Those revivalist hymns, one of the characteristics of them is that they tend to have a refrain. And we want to rep repeat that refrain. Well, what, what, what are these scripture songs that we're so, uh, by and large, grumpy about as Reformed people? They're now refrains without the hymn. It's just one more small step in the evolution of, of hymnody. And, and how are we to evaluate? How are we to balance these things off? The only way to do it, the only way to evaluate it, is to have a standard, a model. And I would suggest to you that's the function, at least one of the functions, of the book of Psalms. The reason God has given it to us. I think God knew that we were at risk when it came to writing hymns. And that he'd better give us a real book of examples on how to do it. And so when somebody says, let's sing the great chorus, Alleluia. Where you say Alleluia 11 times. Preferably with the eyes closed and the hands up. We could stop and say, now, uh, is this a right thing to do? Are there any psalms where one word is repeated over and 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 over again? No. There is repetition in the psalms. There's even one or two psalms that has a refrain. But in general, the psalms are not songs of constant repetition. They are songs of movement. They are songs of the engagement of the mind. They are songs in which the mind is used to praise God. There was an article some years ago in Christianity Today by a great proponent of, of these contemporary songs and, and he said very explicitly, you have to sing these repetitive brief songs over and over again for at least 20 minutes to put the mind to sleep so that you can experience God transrationally. It is Hare Krishna. It doesn't sound like Hare Krishna. It is Hare Krishna. This is a Hindu notion that we must transcend the mind to dissolve in the all. We sang about that in one of the hymns today. Um, <laughs> we have to put the mind to sleep. The mind binds us to time and history, and, and by putting the mind to sleep, we can dissolve into the eternal. That is a pantheistic Hindu idea. It is not a Christian idea. And the Psalms testify to us in every Psalm, use your mind in the praise of God. Use your mind in the praise of God. And so uh, the Psalms are precious to us uh, on that score. Uh, I would argue that we need to use the Psalms because they provide us with praise that is the whole emotional gambit of the emotions that we need to offer to God. Again, Calvin wrote of the Psalter, I have been accustomed to call this book 
I cannot think inappropriately an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. In short, there is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God or in which we are more powerfully stirred up to the performance of this religious exercise. Every religious motion, emotion that you want to offer to God is found in the Psalter. The most exuberant praise, the most profound mourning and lamentation, joy and sorrow, all laid out for you in God's own inspired word. And this is so important because we live in a world where it seems that the only legitimate emotion Christians are supposed to feel anymore is joy. I'm getting a little tired of going to happy funerals. <laughs> you know, the scripture says death is the last enemy. Uh, it is perfectly true that the dead in Christ are enjoying the presence of God and we can rejoice in that. It is perfectly true that the dead in Christ will be raised on the last day to eternal blessedness and we rejoice in that. It is also and equally true that, the, that death is an enemy and that that separation, that destruction of the body is a part of the curse and it is a great sadness. And not to allow Christians to mourn. It's just unfair. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they should, shall be comforted. For there's no mourning, there's no comfort. And the Psalter, you see, is willing to let Christians mourn and to grieve and to lament as well as to be filled with joy and to rejoice. And that wonderful expanse of emotion is something that we have to affirm and insist on uh, in uh, the Christian church. There's a church in Denver that I mentioned it once and got roundly criticized um, by someone who had been there, but I still maintain the point I'm making is valid. The church is officially named the Happy Church. I don't know whether it's a good church or a bad church, but its name is the Happy Church. And all I said was, and I got in trouble, how do you have a funeral in the Happy Church? <laughs> you see, ha happiness is one legitimate Christian emotion, but it's not the only one. Are you all getting restless out there? Um, next, the Psalms remind us that we live in a world of conflict. Every psalm, except two, as I counted them once, has an explicit reference to the fact that we live in a world of conflict where the godly and the ungodly are in opposition, where the righteous and the wicked are in opposition. And to my mind, that makes the psalm book the militant book of the church. It reminds us almost every time we sing about it that this world is not our home, that there, uh, we, we will not be carried to the skies in flowery beds of ease. Most hymns don't make that point. Some of them do, but most hymns do not make that point. The Psalms, I think, put steel in our spine as Calvinists. They remind us that we are here in a world that is not a friend to grace, that is not a friend to God, and we need to be reminded and uh, built up in that truth. Uh, fifthly, if, if I've got my numbers right, uh, fifthly, the Psalms uh, remind us that we are the true Israel. Now, you're all good covenant theologians. You knew that. You probably don't need to be reminded. But this, this, struck, this thought came home to me uh, viscerally one day when we were sitting in church and we sang a hymn. 
Uh, it was a hymn uh, um, uh, written uh, in the early 19th century. I don't know if you know it. It's, O God Beneath Thy Guiding Hand. Does anybody know that hymn? It's in the Christian Reformed Psalter hymn. O God Beneath Thy Guiding Hand, our exiled fathers crossed the sea, and when they trod the wintry strand with prayer and psalm, they worshipped thee. At least this hymn writer knew that they sang only psalms. Um, now, um, the third verse is, Laws, freedom, truth, and faith in God came with those exiles o'er the waves, and where their pilgrim feet have trod, the God they trusted guards their graves. Now, it's, it's a kind of nice hymn, and, and there's, there would be appropriate places to sing it, but I, I don't know why, as I thought, thought, as I sat singing that hymn and thinking about it, it struck me this is a celebration of America's history, and particularly of the English immigrants who came to America, exiled from England, persecuted for their faith, to freedom's fair land, to set up the, the true worship of God. But I thought, um, how would a black Christian sing this song? Uh, is it right for the church to ask black Christians to identify with the experience of Englishmen who came to America? Is that the function of the church? I was recently speaking to a black group, and they had a black song about their history of oppression in this country, and I thought, it's a fine hymn for them to sing, but I can't identify with it very well as an Englishman. And, and it, it sort of struck me, the, the purpose of the church is not in its worship to celebrate our national histories as, as noble, important, valuable as they may be. It's to celebrate the fact that we are the true Israel of God. And that in the Israel of God, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither bond nor slave, bond nor free. And that the Psalms connect us with the history of Israel. So that's a reason to sing them. Rushing along. Uh, finally, that doesn't mean I'm almost done. Um, <laughs> finally, the Psalms are Christocentric. Now, this is the argument most frequently brought against them. But Jesus says that the Psalms were written about him. Luke 24, 44 and following. Luther called the Psalter a little Bible and found it full of Christ and his death and resurrection. An ancient saying of the church declares, Semper in ora psalmus, semper in corda Christus. Always a psalm in the mouth, always Christ in the heart. And obviously the Psalms contain explicit prophecies of Christ, Psalm 22 and 110, but they also abound in images and types which illumine the work of the Savior. If you don't think Christ is in the Psalter, you're either a liberal or a dispensationalist. How's that to catch your attention? <laughs> the Psalms are full of Christ. Now listen to uh, just a brief list of the most characteristic words we use to talk about, well, then again, maybe not. Um, uh, some of the most characteristic words we use to talk about Jesus. Lamb, King, Lord, Messiah. We could go on and on. Those are all words that have meaning only in the context of the Old Testament. They're not abstractions. They are words that we derive from the Old Testament. Our understanding of Jesus at almost every point is an understanding informed and permeated by the teaching of the Old Testament. 
And when we, in the New Covenant, sing the Psalms, I think we realize that those Psalms were more given to us than they were given to Israel. They are more meaningful to us than they were for Israel. We understand the Savior in them much more than Israel could have even begun to. And so we are not losing Jesus, but we are finding him in all the types, in all the pointers, in all the explanation. Well, now you may think this sounds uh, like an apology for exclusive psalmody, and um, that's sort of true. Um, It seems to me the best argument against exclusive psalmody is that... um, At every stage in the history of Israel, there seemed to be new songs written to celebrate God's work. There were uh, songs uh, when they came out of Egypt, and there were songs celebrating David as king, and there were songs celebrating the return from exile. Why shouldn't there be songs to celebrate the great culmination of redemptive history in the appearance of our Lord? seems to be perfectly sensible, and it may be true. It may be true, and it may be a rationalistic abstraction. Now consider this. Consider two points, and I will uh, conclude and escape after these two points. (laughs) Consider, first of all, that the Psalms in the Old Testament tell us only a little bit about the Old Covenant. Have you ever thought about that? We would have a great deal of trouble reconstructing the Old Covenant religion if we had only the Psalms to work with. There is no Psalm that talks about the Sabbath although Psalm 92 has the word Sabbath in the title for the psalm. And yet the Sabbath was one of the very most central institutions of the whole life of Israel. There are vast elements of the history of Israel that find no mention in the Psalter. There's, there's, I think, nothing about the dietary laws in the Psalter. There is certainly no full explication of the life of the temple, although there are many references to it in the Psalter. The Psalter, as the songbook of the Old Covenant, never was a full explication of the Old Covenant. Which at least suggests that a songbook doesn't have to have everything in it. This point, it seems to me, is reinforced when we look at the songs sung in heaven, described in the book of the Revelation, particularly Revelation 4 and 5. Now, if it is true that there ought to be songs explicitly celebrating Jesus and the fulfillment of the New Covenant, we would expect them to be sung there in heaven in the very presence of the Lamb upon the throne. But those songs in Revelation 4 and 5 are no more explicitly Christocentric than are the Psalms of the Old Testament. All of the language of those songs in Revelation 4 and 5 can be found in the Psalms in the Old Covenant. Our worship must be explicitly Christocentric, but perhaps not all of our singing has to be. And perhaps we feel pushed to have songs that mention Jesus all the time because the rest of the service doesn't do its job very adequately, making Jesus present and central. Well, I'm not here to push exclusive psalmody. But I am here to say that one of the avenues that we must walk to get out of the music confusion of the contemporary church is to reassert 
that the Psalms must be our model, pattern, and standard for the praise of God. And that Christians that don't fill their hearts and minds with the Psalms will not be prepared to evaluate hymns in a really productive and helpful way. And that the more we know the Psalms, the more not only will we have the Word of God in our hearts, but the more we'll be able to know what kind of hymns, if any, we ought to sing. Let's sing a psalm together. Let's sing, um, well, let's sing a somewhat rousing one. I...